0: You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Hey, good morning. You know, one, of the, one of the ways that we as humans mark our lives is by catastrophes. Cataclysmic events stick in our minds and really become memory anchors for us. For example, we often talk about where we were at a certain time when some catastrophic event happened. A couple of generations ago, it was, Where were you when Pearl Harbor was attacked? A generation or so ago, it was, Where were you when you heard that JFK was shot? In my growing up years, when I was a teenager, I remember in 1986 when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded shortly after launch. I still remember watching that in school. But I think for the last 20 years, probably the catastrophe that has most marked our lives has been 9-11, with many of us in this room still remembering exactly where we were at that moment when that happened. I, I remember I was in Chicago in graduate school and sitting in a professor's office and saw the second plane hit the second tower and then took that two-hour weird long drive back to my three young children and very pregnant wife. I still remember it very distinctly. Catastrophes or cataclysmic events powerfully sharpen our senses and they sober our minds, making us pay attention. They awaken us from the slumber that tends to creep into our lives from just the mundaneness of daily living. But such moments are... Far more powerful when we don't just think of them in the abstract, but when we remember that there were real people that were experiencing them. So it's one thing to read about Pearl Harbor or the Challenger or 9/11, but it's much deeper and more meaningful to to learn about the story, for example, of George Walters, who was a civilian crane operator who kept swinging his crane back and forth at Pearl Harbor to protect planes from hitting the ship that he was working on. It's much more meaningful to to read about Alan McDonald, the the sole NASA contract engineer who refused to sign off that the launch was safe, even though it was going to cost him his career. Or Todd Beamer of Let's Roll fame, who was one of the passengers on United Flight 93 who joined with other passengers to prevent the plane from hitting the White House or whatever its intended target was. These catastrophes that we know about are much more meaningful when we remember they're real people experiencing them and responding in various ways. And in fact, when we're in crises, when we're in catastrophes, that reveals a lot about who we are. As I was reminded, I heard someone say this week, I was reminded of it, that what's inside of our cup spills out when we are bumped. That is, who we are really comes out in a time of crisis. And so stories of how people react to catastrophes are very important for us. Well, this morning, we are nearing the end of our journey through the amazing gospel of Matthew, preaching through it. I'm going to be really sad when this is over. It's been a great few years off and on to go through Matthew. Um, We'll end it two weeks from today. And today is momentous for several reasons. In the church year calendar, this is Palm Sunday where the church celebrates the beginning of Holy Week where Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. And we're ending this Lenten season this week that began all those weeks ago. And on Friday, we'll gather together for what we call Good Friday to remember Jesus' death. And then on Sunday, we'll be back here to celebrate the most important Christian Sunday of the year, Easter. Now, as we go through Matthew, we are now at the end of Jesus' earthly life, and there's something that has to happen before we can celebrate Easter, and it is a catastrophe. It is a cataclysmic event of Jesus' death. We just heard the story read, but we need to go back and examine it a little bit more closely and answer some of the questions that it raises, and we'll see that this catastrophe is as... Tolkien famously coined a term actually a catastrophe." That is a catastrophe that is shockingly and paradoxically good with that little prefix e-u in front of it meaning good. And we'll see that this catastrophe that is the event of Jesus' death has a good news in it, and it also creates different responses in different people. So I want to pray. I want to pause and just pray once more as we approach this beautiful and weighty text, and then we'll turn to our story and see what God has to say. Let me pray for us once more. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you. Uh, Again, I'm encouraged by this song we just sung this morning that because of what you've done, in fact, the very thing we're seeing in our text today, what you've done to make us your own, to pardon us, to forgive us, to cleanse us. That gives us a freedom. And I pray for myself, I pray for all my hearers today that your spirit would free us from bondage, free us from deception, free us to taste and see your goodness by the power of your spirit today. And I pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can look with me in Matthew 27. We'll put the text on the screen as well. And last week in the earlier part of chapter 27, we saw that Jesus was, he was put on trial and he was mocked and ridiculed and beaten and mistreated. And then he was taken outside of Jerusalem to the execution hill called Golgotha, where he was crucified along some common criminals. Now, crucifixion, was a particularly cruel form of execution that the Roman Empire perfected. And it was so cruel that it could only be used on non-Roman citizens. You couldn't do it on a Roman citizen. The prisoner was affixed to a T-shaped piece of wood and and really just left to die a painful, slow death. And the, the crucified would often live for 24 hours or more and sometimes even a few days. And it was cruel. It was shameful. It was effective as a warning that no one should dare oppose the mighty Roman Empire. And the earlier part of Matthew chapter 27 tells us that while Jesus was there crucified, that people were making fun of him. They were hurling insults at him, mocking him, including the, the Jewish religious leadership who were thrilled now that they had triumphed over him. They had won you see this, this popular teacher and miracle worker that continued to outshine them everywhere he went. He was doing miracles. He taught with authority. He was a man of great compassion. And they were tired of him and they just wanted him gone. And so they were now at their moment of triumph, throwing his own words back in his face. They said, he constantly talked about trusting God and that he was the son of God. Let's see if God rescues him now, ha ha. He said he could save others. Let's see if he can save himself. And so Jesus is not only enduring this horrible physical pain, but also I think in some ways even more receiving this psychological infliction. And our text today picks up right there in the story at what happens unexpectedly at noon. Let me read this first part of our text again. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land and about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, "Eli, Eli which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again, In a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, Matthew shows us that At this point in the gospel, we have now come to the single most dramatic event of the whole story, when Jesus dies. You see, Jesus has done amazing things throughout the story. He's cast out demons. He's walked on water. He's cleansed leprosy and a thousand other diseases. He's raised people from the dead. He's multiplied bread and fish, but nothing compares to the weight of this moment. And we know that this is the most dramatic event that has happened so far in the gospel because of how nature, how creation itself responds. Meteorologically and geologically, the earth itself responds to the event of Jesus' suffering and death. Notice again, the whole sky becomes dark, like some kind of very dark eclipse, but not just lasting a couple of moments while the moon's in front of the sun, but for three hours. And notice how... Opposite this is from what we've seen about Jesus so far, all the light that has marked his life, the, the star of Bethlehem that shows upon him at his birth, the, the fact that he's described as the light of the world, the shining of his glorious light at the transfiguration, and now utter darkness. If you can imagine a time, maybe you've been outside and a very dark storm suddenly rolls in. It's very overwhelming. Imagine that times 10, utter darkness at midday. And we see other cataclysmic events happen. Verse 51 tells us that the temple curtain is ripped from top to bottom. There were two different curtains this could have been. It was either the curtain that separated the, the Gentiles from the holy place for Jewish people in the temple, or it might have even been the, the curtain that separated the holy, of, the holy place from the holy of holies, the place that only the high priest could enter. Either way, it is a momentous and symbolic event. And on top of this, there was an earthquake If you've ever been in an earthquake, you know it is terrifying and very disorienting. There's literally nothing you can do. The earth underneath your feet is shaking. You're completely out of control. And this earthquake wasn't just a little tremor that passed through that made the the teacups in your cupboard rattle. This earthquake was deep and strong enough to break apart boulders and to split rock faces. And some of the rocks that were broken open were actually tombs. And if that's not scary and shocking enough, in verses 52 and 53, we have really some of the most mysterious verses in the Bible that at the moment of Jesus' death, some dead people actually experience resuscitation. And then after Jesus himself was resurrected on the third day, they appeared in Jerusalem as well. This is mysterious, and someone in the first service reminded me that the very first time uh, I went to lunch with them, they asked me this question, and I'm sure I said the same thing then. It's a very mysterious passage, and, and pastors and theologians and scholars have been trying to understand what this means forever. We don't know fully because Matthew just doesn't tell us much about it, but here's what we do know. We do know that Jesus raised people from the dead. He had that power, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and others. And that we know these people died again later naturally. And we can assume that's what happened to these people as well. We know also, That Jesus' own physical resurrection was what the Bible calls the first fruit of a new age, the resurrection age. It's the foretaste of what will be true of all people in the new creation who follow him. And it seems that these people, whoever they were, these resuscitated ones were the first humans to experience kind of a temporary version of this resurrection new age. And who were these people? Well, we don't know for sure, but did you notice that the text calls them holy ones or saints, which is a term that's used in the New Testament to refer to Christians. And I'm inclined to believe what an old understanding was that these were people who had followed Jesus during his ministry, but had died before he himself died, before the events of this day. And so God gives them life again, and they appear after Jesus' resurrection, to their family and friends to reassure them that they are indeed part of Jesus' kingdom, that he has not forgotten them, despite the fact that they died before he did. But we can only do this kind of holy speculating. What we do know is this, that this event is one of the many signs combined together to show us that Jesus' death is is cataclysmic to the very core of creation itself. The sun darkens, the temple curtain is torn in two, the earth splits, dead people arise. It is difficult to imagine a stronger combination of events that says creation itself is buckling and crying out in anguish at the death of God's son. As Dale Bruner describes it, the natural world puts on widow's clothing and goes into mourning as the human world has committed the most heinous crime. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, a great pair of questions that I think are always good to ask whenever reading the Bible is, first, what do we learn about God? And then secondly, what do we learn about ourselves? And I think there's much to be said on both counts. First, what do we learn About God? Well, to answer this, I want to pay close attention to verses 45 and 46. In fact, these verses are so important in the Bible that we often describe them with a phrase, a a description that we call the cry of dereliction, with that word dereliction meaning the state of being abandoned, like we might say a derelict house or something. Now, here's the point, and here's the dilemma. What does it mean for Jesus to cry out that God has forsaken or abandoned him? What does this mean and what is the significance of that? I have to admit something to you that despite studying the Bible for 30 plus years and being a Matthew scholar for some decades as well, I came to realize this week as I was working on this text that I had not thought carefully enough about this question before, and I hadn't fully realized what a big theological truth issue it is. And as I began to look into it, I quickly realized, I need some help here. So I called a theologian friend of mine, and we had a long talk, and then I'm very thankful for Amazon Prime. Because he told me the book to buy. I bought a book and read it. It arrived on Thursday and I read it on Thursday and Friday and it helped me a ton. I don't mean by say that I'm just making this stuff up. I'm saying I had, a lot to, I had a lot of growth to understand what the ancient church understood about this itself. And let me sum it up for you as succinctly and clearly as I can. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is this saying? Well, actually, let me first start with what is this not saying. Here's two things. One, the cry of dereliction is not teaching us that there is a rupture in the Trinity. Let me explain what I mean. It's absolutely crucial to understand this. At the very core of Christianity is the belief in the triune God that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. These persons share one divine essence and are one God. They're not three gods, yet they are distinct as persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they exist in an eternal relationship. But it's a mystery, right? This is not fully comprehensible by us as humans, but it is the most non-negotiable reality of what it means to understand the Christian faith, the triune nature of God. And central to this Trinitarian understanding of God is that these relationships between Father, Son, and Spirit are never broken or ruptured, nor is the Father mad at the Son or any such thing. This would deny, you see, the very nature of God's oneness. Now, why does that matter? Because unfortunately, in popular theology and many pulpits all over the world, I'm sure you will often hear this taught in the wrong way. Namely, that the Father abandoned the Son here, by which people often say that means that there was a break in the relationship between Jesus, God's Son, and the Heavenly Father. The argument usually goes something like this that Jesus became sinful, and therefore God the Father could no longer be in his presence, so he ruptured the relationship, albeit temporally. This sounds very meaningful, and it's something you hear repeated regularly but it's simply mistaken there's nothing in the biblical text here or elsewhere that teaches that there's actually a rupture in the relationship between the father and the son despite how dramatically it's how dramatically good it might sound and that it'll preach or something part of the mistake is i think a misunderstanding of a very important verse from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul writes there, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, that's a beautiful verse. It's an important verse. But this verse is commonly misunderstood to be saying that Jesus actually became sinful. But this is not the point, nor does this correspond with the rest of what the Bible teaches What this is saying is that Christ became a sin offering for us. And if you look at the footnotes in your translation, that's what they usually say there. He became sin, meaning not in his nature, his nature didn't change, but that he took the place of the sacrifice that was required for the sin offering. He became in the place of our sin offering. And this is what the great teaching of what we call imputation is about that our sins as humans our sinfulness is imputed or put on jesus while his righteousness is imputed or granted to us notice imputation does not mean that jesus actually became sinful how could he It means that our sinfulness was credited to his account while his righteousness, his right standing as the part of the eternal, joyful, perfect, loving relationship with the Trinity now becomes our relationship with God. Now that may sound like a subtle difference, but the implications of this are huge because you see, the triune God does never experience a rupture within himself. There is no break in the relationship of the father and the son who eternally exist in a relationship of unity and love. The father, again, is not some big angry dude and the son is begging him not to, uh, not to kill us or something. The triune God in three persons is always and completely for us. And the greatest evidence for this is that while we stand condemned and dead because of our sins and sinfulness, Jesus as the son of God was willing to have all of our evil accounted to him and to face the suffering and death at the hands of the humanity that he himself created. You see, Jesus as a real and full human, he didn't want to face this humiliation, this pain, this suffering, this death. Remember, back in chapter 26, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he expressed what would any human would express. He doesn't want to go through this, but he shows that he and the Father are one and that he says, Not my will, but your will be done, meaning that Jesus' will was united with the Father's plan. And so when we sing the great song, and it's a great song, I love it, How Deep the Father's Love. When we sing the line, the father turned his face away. Whatever you think that means, it does not mean that there's a rupture in the Trinity itself. The father does not abandon the son in the sense of breaking a relationship with him. The other thing the cry of dereliction does not mean is that Jesus only appeared to suffer. I mean, this was real suffering. Jesus was fully human. Two natures in one person, divine and human, but he's fully human. He truly did suffer in our place. He leaves us an example, as Peter tells us. He provides the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He really did suffer and die. Otherwise, we would never receive the benefits of what he did. It's not just a magician's trick. This is a true and desperate cry from Jesus. He is facing the anguish of facing pain and death. It is a cataclysmic event as we saw the earth itself responds to. So what does the cry of dereliction teach us about God? Well, here's how I would sum it up. Maybe you want to write this down. In the triune God's eternal plan for our redemption the son willingly endured the father abandoning him over to suffering and death by sinful humans as a substitute and eternally perfect sin offering for us. We say that again in the triune God's eternal plan for our redemption. The son willingly endured the father abandoning him over to suffering and death by sinful humans as a substitute An eternally perfect sin offering for us. You see, this is not a break in the relationship of the Father and the Son, but the Father, with the Son's willing obedience, does abandon Jesus over to suffering and death. That really happened. That is, He does not rescue him as Jesus deserved. The Father does not spare Jesus this humiliation and this pain and this real death. The Son of God truly tastes death and drinks its bitter cup down to the dregs. And Jesus' desperate cry is real, but not because his relationship with his Father is disrupted, but because he truly endures all the pain and death that we deserve and that he takes as a sin offering for us. Why? Why? Because this is how God has redeemed to restore us. Our sin and our rebellion has brought death into the world, but life is found in blood. Blood is the source of all life. And in God's kindness and majesty and wisdom, death itself is now conquered through the pouring out of Jesus' perfect blood, thereby giving us perfect life. Remember what Jesus said. Just the night right before this, at his last meal with his disciples, he said, it says, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This, friends, is what we call the great substitution. A blood sacrifice is required to give life where death has come. And Jesus offers himself to be this sin offering, thereby procuring for us eternal life because he was sinless and God himself. Our sinfulness is washed away through this perfect sacrifice, and we are given his perfect righteousness. And all of this again is the greatest proof that the triune God is forever and always for us fully. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul reminds us, God made us alive through Christ. This is shocking. This is stunning. This is unexpected. This is mouth-gaping beautiful. And when we grasp this, we can do nothing but fall on our knees. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the impulse and the nuclear core of the New Testament's message that all people can now have a full and perfect and 100% certain covenantal relationship with God because the triune God's loving act to bring us life instead of death by the son's willingness to stand in our place. Now, there is so much more we could say about these verses, including how it all connects to Psalm 22, because that line from Jesus is from Psalm 22. But as I always tell my students, if you say too many things in the pulpit, you end up saying nothing. So I've got to leave it here. I would be very happy to buy any of you a cup of coffee. I drink a lot of coffee anyways. I'll buy you all a cup of coffee and talk about these things more if you like. But I said I wanted to ask what this text tells us about God More briefly, let me say what this tells us about us. What do we learn about ourselves? Well, as I've been studying this story, it struck me that there is not only a lot going on theologically here, there's also a lot going on humanly as well. Did you notice all the different characters in this story and how they each respond differently to this cataclysmic event. And the part of our story right before this, we saw people mocking Jesus. I think that's what's still going on in verses 47 to 49. Let me read them for you again. It says, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, offered to Jesus. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah saves him. It's not clear whether these were the Jewish people there or the Roman soldiers or both, but either way, these people represent those who are standing back, arms crossed, personally disconnected from all this suffering, waiting to see what happens, like they're sitting at the top of the bleachers, aloof and removed. They're heartless as suffering. They're playing with them even. But there are other characters as well such as the Roman captain or centurion, that when in verse 54, he sees all these events happen. Do you remember what he says? He says, surely this was the son of God. We don't know how much the centurion understood, but for readers of Matthew, we recognize this is the most true statement that could be bad. This is said, this is the same thing that God the father said at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration. And now it's said here again, he is the son of God. And did you notice the the tearful but faithful women in verses 55 and 56? It says, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. They'd left their homes miles and miles away. They left their lives following Jesus to care for his needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And... And after he's buried, we see in verse 61 that they're still waiting there tearfully and faithfully outside the tomb. These faithful women are here waiting upon Jesus, giving their faithful presence to him, even in the midst of their confusion and fear. And do you notice who's not there? The 12 disciples. They all fled. And then we also meet a new Character, Joseph of Arimathea. Look at verse 57 and following again. It says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he'd cut out of the rock. And he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. We had a Joseph at the beginning of the story, Jesus' adopted father. Now we meet another Joseph here at the end. He's a wealthy and respected man. Mark and Luke tell us that he was actually a member of the Jerusalem Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, but that he didn't go along with the condemnation of Jesus. Why? Because at some point, this wealthy, prestigious Jewish leader had seen Jesus and become a believer. And I want you to understand what a bold and self-sacrificing this move this was on Joseph's part. He chose at this point to publicly show himself as a disciple of Jesus. He willingly associated with the shame and the social rejection that would come with him saying, I'm with Jesus. And Joseph is a man of such standing that he gets an audience with Pilate and he, he's granted permission to take down the body of Jesus and burial. And the gospel of John tells us that there's another wealthy Jewish man with him there as well, Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus who had challenged Jesus at the beginning of John? Now he too is with, with Joseph in burying Jesus. And they bury him in this brand new cave tomb and we, we found a lot of these from the first century in Jerusalem it's a it's a cave that you basically carve a large area out for with shelves for many bodies Joseph had just built one of these for his own family and he gives this up for Jesus to be buried and so recognize this emboldened faith that results in great sacrifice of both money and reputation now here's the question why are all these characters here Why not just tell the story of Jesus? Why are these characters here? Well, here's why, friends. Because these characters represent very different responses to this catastrophic event. You have mocking and ridiculing people. You have skeptics who are disconnected and aloof and cold. You have fearful but faithful people. You've got absence, the disciples flee. And you've got emboldened and sacrificial Faith. And God is inviting us this morning to observe these different responses and in them to understand something about ourselves. And I have to ask myself and I have to ask you, which of these characters do you find yourself identifying the most with today? Are you skeptical? Aloof? Of standing back, I'm not looking at you if you actually have your arms crossed, but I just mean in your heart, are you kind of stepping back and kind of looking at this? Maybe a spouse made you come, maybe you don't know what to think. Are you mocking? Are you fleeing from God even today? Do you have a tearful faithfulness? Do you feel confused, but you know you want to be at the presence of the Lord? Maybe you're newly emboldened like Joseph. This was the greatest catastrophe that ever occurred in human history, that God made a you catastrophe. And he's asking us today, and I'm asking you, how do you respond to this event? What's spilling out of you as you bump into this cataclysmic event? And I want to say to you, that if today, if you find in your heart mocking, I want you to understand that mocking comes from fear. If you're showing up in life mocking, that shows there's a deep fear inside of you that's not been addressed. This morning, if you're showing up skeptical with your arms crossed, too cool for school, I want you to understand that Underneath skepticism and aloofness are pain and wounds that you're hiding. That skepticism and aloofness are ways that you've learned to protect yourself from deep wounds that you need to start paying attention to. Maybe this morning you're receiving this with tearful faithfulness, and this is beautiful. And maybe this is a week where you need to just sit at the Lord's feet, awaiting for the celebration of Easter. You want to be near the Lord, but all you can barely see through the veil of tears. It's okay. Or maybe this morning you will be like Joseph. You're newly emboldened to step out of hiding, to step into the light, to make sacrificial faith acts that come from seeing Jesus clearly for who he is. Where were you when the Challenger exploded or 9-11 happened? How did you respond then? But far more importantly, where are you today as we face the greatest catastrophe of human history, the death of the incarnate Son of God? How will you respond? Because you see, your answer matters. Your response matters. It will set the course of the rest of your life and your eternal status when the resurrected and ascended son of God returns to set the world to right. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time. Maybe you aren't a Christian. Let me just ask you this final question. What would your life look and feel like if you actually believed that the God of the universe is fully for you. What would your life feel and taste and be like if you could actually grasp that while you were dead and all the guilt and shame and pain and disappointment that marks your life, while that is true of you, if you actually believe that what we're talking about here is makes you free that you can actually be free from the guilt and the shame and the burden and the responsibility of all your brokenness. What would happen if you actually believed that the triune God was for you fully? That would transform your life. And so I invite you, I invite you to behold the Christ who is in our place as a sin offering this morning. And as we come to this, these symbols that celebrate this, we're reminded that what Jesus did on the cross was most explained with what he said the night before, that this body, this bread is my body that is broken for you, he says, and this wine is my blood poured out to make an eternal covenant with you. And so if you're a Christian today, as you partake of these elements, remember that this is your freedom this is your life. No one else has the words of life besides the incarnate Son of God. Let me pray, then the musicians will come forward. Take the communion as you desire, and let's sing and give our lives to the Lord anew in song. Let me pray for us. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.